Section 16 of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 1873. Roman Rides, Part 1. I shall always remember the first I took out of the Porta del Popolo to where the Ponte Molle, whose single arch sustains a weight of historic tradition, compels the Sallow Tiber to flow between its four great-mannered ecclesiastical statues over the crest of the hill and along the old posting road to Florence. It was mild midwinter, the season peculiarly of colour on the Roman Campagna, and the light was full of that mellow purple glow, that tempered intensity which haunts the after-visions of those who have known Rome, like the memory of some supremely irresponsible pleasure. An hour away I pulled up, and at the edge of a meadow gazed away for some time into remoter distances. Then and there it seemed to me I measured the deep delight of knowing the Campania. But I saw more things in it than I can easily tell. The country rolled away around me into the slopes and dells of long-drawn grace, chequered with purple and blue and blooming brown. The lights and shadows were at play on the Sabine Mountains, an alternation of tones so exquisite as to be conveyed only by some fantastic comparison to sapphire and amber. In the foreground, a contadino in his cloak and peaked hat jogged solitary on his ass. And here and there in the distance, among blue undulations, some white village, some grey tower, helped deliciously to make the picture the typical Italian landscape of old-fashioned art. It was so bright, and yet so sad, so still, and yet so charged to the super-sensuous ear with the murmur of an extinguished life that you could only say it was intensely and adorably strange, could only impute to the whole overarched scene an unsurpassed secret for bringing tears of appreciation to no matter how ignorant, archaeologically ignorant, eyes. To ride once in these conditions is, of course, to ride again, and to allot to the Campania a generous share of the time one spends in Rome. It is a pleasure that doubles one's horizon, and one can scarcely say whether it enlarges or limits one's impression of the city proper. It certainly makes St. Peter's seem a trifle smaller, and blunts the edge of one's curiosity in the forum. It must be the effect of the experience at all extended that when you think of Rome afterwards, you will think still respectfully and regretfully enough of the Vatican and the Pinchot, the streets and the picture-making street life, but will even more wonder with an irrepressible contraction of the heart when again you shall feel yourself bounding over the flower-smothered turf or pass from one framed picture to another beside the open arches of the crumbling aqueducts. You look back at the city so often from some grassy hilltop 
hugely compact within its walls, with St. Peter's overtopping all things, and yet seeming small, and the vast girdle of marsh and meadow receding on all sides to the mountains and the sea, that you come to remember it at last as hardly more than a respectable parenthesis in a great sweep of generalisation. Within the walls, on the other hand, you think of your intended ride as the most romantic of all your possibilities, of the Campania generally as an illimitable experience. One's rides certainly give Rome an inordinate scope for the reflective, by which I suppose I mean, after all, the aesthetic and the esoteric life. To dwell in a city which, much as you grumble at it, is, after all, very fairly a modern city, with crowds and shops and theatres and cafes and balls and receptions and dinner parties and all the modern confusion of social pleasures and pains, to have at your door the good and evil of it all, and yet to be able in half an hour to gallop away and leave it a hundred miles, a hundred years behind, and to look at the tufted broom glowing on a lonely tower-top in the still blue air, and the pale pink asphodels trembling nonetheless for the stillness, and the shaggy-legged shepherds leaning on their sticks, emotionless brotherhood with the heaps of ruin and the scrambling goats and staggering little kids treading out wild desert smells from the top of hollow-sounding mounds and then to come back through one of the great gates and a couple of hours later find yourself in the world dressed introduced entertained inquiring talking about middlemarch to a young english lady or listening to Neapolitan songs from a gentleman in a very low-cut shirt. All this is to lead, in a manner, a double life, and to gather from the hurrying hours more impressions than a mind of modest capacity quite knows how to dispose of. I touched lately upon this theme with a friend who, I fancied, would understand me, and who immediately assured me that he had just spent a day that this mingled diversity of sensation made to the days one spends elsewhere what an uncommonly good novel may be to the daily paper. There was an air of idleness about it, if you will, he said, and it was certainly pleasant enough to have been wrong. Perhaps being, after all, unused to long stretches of dissipation, this was why I had a half-feeling that I was reading an odd chapter in the history of a person very much more of a héros de roman than myself. Then he proceeded to relate how he had taken a long ride with a lady whom he extremely admired. We turned off from the Torre di Quinto road to that castellated farmhouse, you know, of once a Ghibelline fortress, with the Claude Lorrain used to come to paint pictures of which the surrounding landscape is still so artistically, so compositionally suggestive. We went into the inner court, a cloister almost, with the carven capitals of its loggia columns, 
and looked at a handsome child swinging shyly against the half-open door of a room whose impenetrable shadow behind her made her, as it were, a sketch in bituminous watercolours. We talked with the farmer, a handsome, pale, fever-tainted fellow with a well-to-do air that didn't in the least deter his affability from a turn compatible with the acceptance of a small coin. And then we galloped away and away over the meadows which stretch with hardly a break to Veille. The day was strangely delicious, with a cool grey sky and just a touch of moisture in the air stirred by our rapid motion. The Campagna in the colourless even light was more solemn and romantic than ever, and a ragged shepherd driving a meagre straggling flock, whom we stopped to ask our way of, was a perfect type of pastoral weather-beaten misery. He was precisely the shepherd of the foreground of a scratchy etching. There were faint odours of spring in the air, and the grass here and there was streaked with great patches of daisies. But it was spring with a foreknowledge of autumn, a day to be enjoyed with a substrain of sadness, the foreboding of regret, a day somehow to make one feel as if one had seen and felt a great deal. Quite, as I say, like a héros de roman. Touching such characters, it was the illustrious poem, I think, who, on being asked if he rode, replied that he left those violent exercises to the ladies. But under such a sky and such an air, over acres of daisied turf, a long, long gallop is certainly a super-subtle joy. The elastic bound of your horse is the poetry of motion. And if you are so happy as to add to it not only the prose of companionship, riding comes almost to affect you as a spiritual exercise. My gallop, at any rate, said my friend, threw me into a mood which gave an extraordinary zest to the rest of the day. He was to go to a dinner party at a villa on the edge of Rome, and Madame X, who was also going, called for him in her carriage. It was a long drive he went on through the Forum, past the Colosseum. She told me a long story about a most interesting person. Towards the end, my eyes caught through the carriage window a slab of rugged sculptures. We were passing under the arch of Constantine. In the hall pavement of the villa is a rare antique mosaic, one of the largest and most perfect. The ladies on their way to the drawing-room trail over it the flounces of worth. We drove home late, and there's my day. On your exit from most of the gates of Rome, you have generally half an hour's progress through winding lanes, many of which are hardly less charming than the open meadows. On foot, the walls and high hedges would vex you and spoil your walk. But in the saddle, you generally overtop them to an endless peopling of the minor vision. 
Yet a Roman wall in the springtime is, for that matter, almost as interesting as anything it conceals. Crumbling grain by grain, coloured and mottled to a hundred tones by sun and storm, with its rugged structure of brick extruding through its coarse complexion of peeling stucco, its creeping lacework of wandering ivy starred with miniature violets, and its wild fringe of starter flowers against the sky, it is as little as possible a blank partition. It is practically a luxury of landscape. At the moment at which I write, in mid-April, all the ledges and cornices are wreathed with flaming poppies, nodding here and there as if they knew so well that faded greys and yellows are an offset to their scarlet. But the best point in a dilapidated enclosing surface of vineyard or villa is, of course, the gateway, lifting its great arch of cheap rococo scrollwork, its balls and shields and mossy dish covers, as they always perversely figure to me, and flanked with its dusky cypresses. I never pass one without taking up my mental sketchbook and jotting it down as a vignette in the insubstantial record of my ride. They are as sad and dreary as if they led to the moated grange where Mariano waited in desperation for something to happen. And it's easy to take the usual inscription over the porch as a recommendation to those who enter to renounce all hope of anything but a glass of more or less agreeably acrid vino romano. For what you chiefly see over the walls and at the end of the straight short avenue of rusty cypresses are the appurtenances of a vigna. A couple of acres of little upright sticks blackening in the sun and a vast, sallow-faced, scantily windowed mansion whose expression denotes little of the life of the mind beyond what goes to the driving of a hard bargain over the tasted hogsheads. If Mariana is there... She certainly has no pile of old magazines to beguile her leisure. The life of the mind, if the term be in any application here not ridiculous, appears to any asker of curious questions as he wanders about Rome, the very thinnest deposit of the past. Within the Rococo gateway, which itself has a vaguely aesthetic self-consciousness, at the end of the Cypress Walk, you'll probably see a mythological group in rusty marble, a Cupid and a Psyche, a Venus and Paris, an Apollo and Daphne. The relic of an age when a Roman proprietor thought it fine to patronise the arts. But I imagine you are safe in supposing it to constitute the only illusion savouring of culture that has been made on the premises for three or four generations. There is a franker cheerfulness, though certainly a proper amount of that forlornness which lurks about every object to which the Campania forms a background, in the primitive little taverns where, on the homeward stretch in the waning light, you are often glad to rein up and demand a bottle of their best. Their best and their worst are indeed the same, though with the shifting price, and plain vino bianco or vino rosso, rarely both, is the sole article of refreshment in which they deal. 
There is a ragged bush over the door, and within, under a dusky bolt, on crooked cobblestones, sit half a dozen contadini in their indigo jackets and goatskin breeches, and with their elbows on the table. There is generally a rabble of infantile beggars at the door, pretty enough in their dusty rags with their fine eyes and intense Italian smile, to make you forget your private vow of doing your individual best to make these people whom you like so much unlearn their old vices. Was Portapia bombarded three years ago that Peppino should still grow up to wine for a copper? But the Italian shells had no direct message for Peppino's stomach, and you are going to a dinner party at a villa. So Peppino points an instant for the copper in the dust and grows up a Roman beggar. The whole little place represents the most primitive form of hostelry, but along any of the roads leading out of the city you may find establishments of a higher type with Garibaldi superbly mounted and foreshortened, painted on the wall, or a lady in a low-necked dress opening a fictive lattice with irresistible hospitality, and a yard with the classic vine-wreathed arbour casting thin shadows upon benches and tables, draped and cushioned with the white dust from which the highways from the gates borrow most of their local colour. Nonetheless, I say, you avoid the high roads, and if you are a person of taste, don't grumble at the occasional need of following the walls of the city. City walls, to a properly constituted American, can never be an object of indifference. And it is emphatically no end of a sensation to pace in the shadow of this massive cincture of Rome. I have found myself, as I skirted its base, talking of trivial things, but never without a sudden reflection on the deplorable impermanence of first impressions. A twelve-month ago, the raw plank fences of a Boston suburb, inscribed with the virtues of healing drugs, bristled along my horizon. Now I glance with idle eyes at a compacted antiquity in which a more learned sense may read portentous dates and signs. Servius. Aurelius, Honorius. But even to idolise the prodigious, the continuous thing bristles with eloquent passages. In some places where the huge brickwork is black with time and certain strange square towers look down at you with still blue eyes, the Roman sky peering through lidless loopholes, and there is nothing but white dust in the road and solitude in the air, I might take myself for a wandering Tartar touching on the confines of the celestial empire. The wall of China must have very much such a gaunt robustness. The colour of the Roman ramparts is everywhere fine, and their rugged patchwork has been subdued by time and weather into a mellow harmony that the brush only asks to catch up. On the northern side of the city, behind the Vatican, St. Peter's and the Trastevere, I have seen them glowing in the late afternoon with the tones of ancient bronze and rusty gold. 
Here, at various points, they are embossed with the papal insignia, the tiara with its flying bands and crossed keys, to the high style of which the grace that attaches to almost any lost cause, even if not quite the tender grace of a day that is dead, considerably adds a style. With the dome of St. Peter's resting on their corners, and the hugely clustered architecture of the Vatican rising from them as from a terrace, they seem indeed the ballad bulwark of an ecclesiastical city. Vain bulwark, alas, sighs the sentimental tourist, fresh from the meagre entertainments of this latter Holy Week. But he may find monumental consolation in this neighbourhood at a source where, as I pass, I never fail to apply for it. At half an hour's walk beyond Porta San Pancrazio, beneath the wall of the Villa Doria, is the delightfully pompous ecclesiastical gateway of the 17th century, erected by Paul V to commemorate his restoration of the aqueducts, through which the stream bearing his name flows towards the fine florid portico protecting its clear-sheeted outgush on the crest of the geniculum. It arches across the road in the most ornamental manner of the period, and one can hardly pause before it without seeming to assist at a ten minutes revival of old Italy, without feeling as if one were in a cocked hat and sword, and were coming up to Rome in another mood than Luther's, with a letter of recommendation to the mistress of a cardinal. End of section 16